This morning we have a um, we have a really special treat. Um, some of you may not even be aware of this. We've had uh, really our first summer intern this summer. Uh, John Bennett has served in this capacity. John's 19 years old, though I don't think you'll think he's 19 by the time he's all finished. John has very uncommon maturity uh, for his age and uh, has really just blessed us a ton. He has, um, I think if you ask him, he has most definitely done some things he probably didn't want to do. But in, in between some of the stuff that he didn't want to do is a lot of stuff that he, he got to do that he really enjoyed. And so um, it has been just a, a huge encouragement to me. It's been good for our church. Uh, John has um, kind of shadowed us all summer long. So if we made hospital visits or homebound visits or new member interviews, um, anything that was kind of happening, uh, we get the phone call, and then uh, John was certainly on the way with us wherever we went. And so he's had a variety of experiences. We just said, you know, one of the things that you need to know about church is the teaching responsibility is really important. So he taught our kids, I think, twice for Wacky Wednesdays. He taught twice up in the youth ministry. He taught our adult Bible study twice on Wednesday nights. And when I was giving him kind of the list of responsibilities and the big old long list of books he was going to have to read, I said, oh, and oh, yeah, at the end of the summer, you'll have to preach. And so I was waiting for him to kind of, you know, pass out backwards. And he didn't do that. And he said, well, if that's the responsibility, um, I'll be glad to give it my best shot. And so we have been so excited for him. We've been praying for him as uh, all of his responsibilities this summer have been leading up to this point. That God would use um, what he has to say this morning to encourage people in their walk in faith. Because that's really what it's all about. And so um, thank you guys for being here. And I told him, I said, John, it's, the, it's a hometown crowd. You're not going to find more smiling faces and more people that are going to be happy for you than you will find right here. And so John's going to come, and as he comes, can I open us with a word of prayer? Father, I pray for John as he makes his way uh, uh, to the stage right now, that you will give him clarity of mind, that you'll uh, allow the truths that he has studied to shine through in the words that he has to share with us today. Father, it is important for us to have confidence in our relationship with you. And I pray that when all is said and done, through the songs that we have sung, through the word that we have heard, Father, that we will um, love you more for your love for us, and that we will diligently follow you in this walk that we call discipleship. So bless us, Lord, through your word. Amen. Hey, can you guys hear me right now? All right, well, good morning, everybody. I'd like to uh, introduce myself. Like Scott said, I'm John Bennett. I've been a member here for a little over five years, and I played the drums a little bit in the youth group and Sunday morning. And it, when Scott called me and you know, wanted to ask me if I wanted to do an inter internship, I quickly accepted. I was really excited about doing everything, including this sermon this morning, which my internship isn't over yet. I have about 30 more minutes on the clock. And I hope it's going to be good. I know it's not going to be as good as Scott's, but I hope it'll be shorter. So I hope some of you will thank me. <laughs> well, over my internship, I did a five-week Bible study with the college group through the book of 1 John. And that's what we're going to be talking to today. So if you want to flip open to 1 John, we're going to be flipping back and forth, just kind of hitting some uh, big moments in 1 John. So... In 1 John, there's this one really big theme throughout the whole book. It really kind of saturated everything about what he said. And the purpose was that it was about assurance of our faith. And I really want to ask this question right at the beginning. And think hard about this. Can we know that we're saved? 
really think about it, can I know with 100% certainty that if I were to die today, would I go to heaven? I think we've all thought that question in our heads, and I'm sure that we've had that doubt in our mind. I know I've been kept up many nights thinking, you know, I know I believe, but does this really apply to me? Does the Bible still speak truth today? Am I really saved? So all these questions, you know, really ate at my doubts, which was, you know, not good for my life. But for those of you who haven't had those doubts, that means that you do have confidence that you can have eternal life through Jesus. But I want to ask this question to you guys. Where does your confidence come from? What source does this confidence lie in, and how can you be so certain of it? Now, I don't want to ask you that to make you paranoid or to put doubt into your mind, but I have to assert the truth that there are people who have confidence and a sort of cockiness that's like, yeah, I'm saved, I don't need to worry about it. And they have no right and no foundation on which their confidence lies in. So the book of First John will really help reveal that to us and it will help you know, answer those doubts and give your confidence a test to what is written in here. So I want to first start at the end of First John in chapter 5, verse 13. It really gives the ending purpose statement to the whole book. And in verse 13, it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So we can know that we have eternal life. And again, in the middle of 1 John, in chapter 2, verse 28, he writes not only that we can know that we have eternal life, but that we should be confident in our eternal life. In verse 28 it says, And now, dear children, continue in Him, so that when He appears we may be confident and unashamed before Him at His coming. So by these two verses we can definitely know that we can be confident that we do have eternal life and that we can know that we have eternal life. And when I say eternal life, I want to talk specifically about the eternal life in heaven as humans, we're all going to have an eternity somewhere. Just not everyone will be spending their time in heaven. Some will be in hell. But when I refer to eternal life, I am talking about eternal life in heaven. So chapter uh, 5, 13 says, I write these things. You don't have to flip there. Just I write these things. So those things are how we can tell that we have eternal life. And we have to figure out what those things are. And if you do know that you have eternal life, just hear these things and see if they line up with what you believe in. So throughout the whole First John, there's really three big topics of these things so that we can know. And the first is that we can know that we have eternal life by what we affirm to be true, which is our first point. We can know that we have eternal life by what we affirm to be true. So first, we have to affirm sound doctrine, which this is just a set of truth or a set of beliefs that we have to accept and believe in. And these truths can be seen in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. So verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So first, we have to affirm who God is. We have to affirm that He is all-knowing, all-present, and all-powerful. 
And not only this, but he is faithful and just to us. And calling him just can be quickly overlooked and can be, you know, not seen as important, but it really is. So calling God just means that no matter how uh, cruel or how hard a circumstance is, God's just to put you through that because he is just. Therefore, God's just when he doesn't save people from eternal life in hell. Okay, the second thing that we have to affirm is who we are. We are sinful and unrighteous, it calls us in verse 9. And the importance of you know, affirming that we're sinful and righteous is that we don't deserve the eternal life that He can give us. He doesn't have to save His people from eternal life to hell, but He chooses to. You know, I've been reading a lot of books this uh, internship, which at first I really didn't want to read them. But... I soon, you know, found the value of them. And one of the books I read was by R.C. Sproul. And the book was called The Holiness of God. And it talked about his, you know, justice. And the book states that in creation, all sin is deemed worthy of death. Every sin is a capital sin. And that's a hard truth to affirm. Every, you know, pen we steal, every lie that we say to our parents, that is just for him to give us an eternal life in hell like we so deserve. But an even harder truth to affirm is what R.C. Sproul says next. He says, In creation, God is not obliged to give us the gift of life. He is not in debt to us. The gift of life comes by His grace and stands under His divine authority. So not only do we have to affirm that we're sinful and unrighteous and that will lead us to death, but we have to affirm that God doesn't have to save us if He doesn't want to. But that's where grace comes in. And that's where the first part of verse 9 comes in. If we confess our sins. So we have to confess our sins so the gift of eternal life can be applied to us. So the first point says that we have to have uh, some knowledge base first in order to know that we have eternal life. But no matter you know, how, many, how much knowledge you have, that can't be where it ends. You have to have more than knowledge, because demons have, you know, great knowledge of God and great knowledge of how He works and how the Bible is. In James two nineteen, I'll just read it out. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So knowledge is important, and knowledge must be there. But it makes us no more saved than the demons will not be saved. So, we need more than knowledge. We need a heart change, which is our second point. We can know that we have eternal life by what our hearts love. We can know that we have eternal life by what our hearts love. And the importance of a change in heart is that unless we apply all that knowledge we get into our heart, it means nothing. A full head and a cold heart only means that we're good at Christian jeopardy. Or that we're good at answering questions in Sunday school. It means nothing to whether we are saved or not. Or if we can know that we're saved or not. So we have to start loving things correctly. And loving the right things. So the first thing that John addresses on how to love. Is not actually what to love. But it's what not to love. So we'll be in 1 John chapter 2. Verses 15 through 17. And these verses really show us what not to love and why not to love them. 
So verse 15, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the love of the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. In this states that our love should not be creation-centered, it should be creator-centered. So first we have to turn away from His creation so we can actually love the Creator as the Lord. And we should do this because these things are sinful things. You know, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, whether it's your job, your money that you have, the relationships that you hold, they're all sinful and they're not permanent like God is permanent. Well, then, now we know what not to love, so what do we love? Well, 1 John chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, it really gives a good definition on what, to, what true love is and then explains how we should love. So verse 10 says, This is love, not that, God, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear Lord, since God's... Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives us, God loves in us, and His love is made complete in us. So remember what R.C. Sproul said about you know, our sinful life and how sinful life means that we should go to hell. Well, then why did God save us? We can't do anything for Him. He's perfect. He's holy. I can't make Him any more perfect or any holier. So why did He send His Son to save us? Well, it's because He loves us perfectly. And it says that this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and He loved us perfectly and sent His Son to save us. So I'm going to give a little analogy. So who has ever said, hey, I'd take a bullet for you? Because I know I have. But why would I say that? You know, I'd say I'd take a bullet for you because I care and love about those people that I'd take a, care, that I'd take a bullet for. It's a you know, sign of love. It's an act of love. Now think of, you know, a really vile, hateful, sinful person that you may know. Would you take a bullet for them? Because God, you know, sacrificed Himself for vile, evil, sinful people like us. But I'm sure almost everyone in here knows what He did for us. We have this knowledge in our head, but does it really apply to our heart? Does it affect us? Does it change us? Well, Verse uh, 11 in chapter 4 says that it most absolutely should affect our heart. It says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God showed us His perfect love, so we must therefore love other people. He was the definition of the act of true love. And we're commanded to love others like He loved us. And if our hearts have this love. It's not from the world or worldly things. It's from the love that we have from Him that He has given to us. And in 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, it again confirms this. The author of 1 John just really wanted to hammer down the point that we can really know that we have eternal life by what our hearts love. Let's see what it says in verse 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. 
Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So the love for each other is evidence that we are no longer dead, but alive in Christ. And we can't stop there. It tells us as true if we do not love. The truth that if we do not love is that we remain in sin. There has been no heart change from that knowledge. Because the opposite of love is hate. And hate is having the sin of murder in your heart towards others. And we know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So we must love. It's not a request. It's not him asking us to love. It's a natural part of living in Christ. Well, then, how do we love? Well, the next few verses tell us how to love. Verse 16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with action and in truth. Jesus was the example of the act of love, not to be forcefully murdered by others, but to willingly lay down his life for others. Now, this is obviously one way that we can show love to each other is by laying our da- lives down for each other. Almost all the apostles did this thing, and all of them are willing to. And it didn't end with them either. I was doing research on, you know, just sacrificing yourselves for others. And in the 1800s, there was a missionary named A.W. Milne. And he was willing to do this too. He was a missionary sailing to the islands of New Hebrides in the South Pacific. And he did this knowing that every single missionary that went before him had been killed and eaten by the cannibals that lived on the islands. But he still went. He packed his things in a coffin and left with no plans to return. Miraculously, he was not eaten and he lived 35 years on the island. And when he died, the islanders wrote on his tombstone, When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. And this is the love that First John is calling us to do. Calling us to, willing, calling us to be willing to die a martyr for our faith. But it's not just that we have to die a martyr. We have to love in action. Whether it's giving needs to the poor or having pity on them. Our feelings are not what is the act of love. We have to act upon our love. And action leads to living a transformed life, which is our third point. We know that we have eternal life by living a transformed life. We know that we have eternal life by living a transformed life. So both affirmation of truth and love in our hearts will naturally lead to this. You can't have both of these and not live a transformed life. It simply can't happen. The love that we get in our hearts from the knowledge of God will lead us to live a transformed life. And verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 7 sh- describes what a transformed life is like. And I'm sure most of you will know this verse or have heard of it. Verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son purifies us. From all sin. 
And this shows that there's you know, a definite change from when we were in the darkness, when we were not Christians, to now that we walk in the light, now that we are Christians, there's been a change in us, and that is shown through what we do in this life. And what we do in this life results from something very specific. In, verse, in chapter 5, verse 3, excuse me, it shows us that the love, that love that we have for God will result in obeying His commands, living a transformed life. Verse 3, it says, In fact, this is love for God, to keep His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. So to love God and to live a transformed life equates to keeping His commands. Again, there can't be one without the other. We can't love God and openly reject His commands. We can't live a sinful life and still claim to be Christians. We can't obey His greatest or second greatest command without love for our hearts because His greatest and second greatest command is to love. In Matthew it says, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with your, all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, he again confirms this idea of thinking that to obey his commands is to love. Verse 23 says, And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us. To believe in Jesus means that we love him and follow what he commands us to do. Not only can we not follow the first and the second greatest commandment, we can't follow any of God's commandments without love. We can't do anything that is meaningful in our life without love in our hearts. 1 Corinthians says, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So no matter how good of a life that we think we live is, without love there's nothing to be gained from it. But 1 John chapter 3, 6 shows us that in order to live a transformed life, we must first turn away from the sinful life that we used to live. Verse 6 says, No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen Him or known Him. Well, when I read that verse the first time, I saw that you know, no one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. And I thought to myself, well, how can I be on that list? How can I know that I have eternal life? Because I still sin even though I'm a Christian. And even though I believe in Jesus, I still sin. So I thought about it and I realized that the three words in the middle of that were very important to not be overlooked. It says, keeps on sinning. That means there's a continual and sinful lifestyle present. There has been no transformation in your life from when you were not a Christian to when you were a Christian. Nothing has changed because you keep on sinning the same way that you once did. And this really means when we turn away from that and we don't continue to live in sinful life, that we have a transformed life. And that's how we can know 
that we have eternal life. Now, since I have said some uh, things I want to clarify myself, and I might have miscommunicated a little bit, I'm not sure. And the point of it is really that there's the three points that I've put up, and if they are present, I've kind of said that you can know that you have eternal life if they're present in it. But I want to make sure that you don't think that Christianity is a works-based faith. You can't do anything to save you, even though when you skim through 1 John, it may seem that way. In 1 John, it does say, we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Or it may seem like, I know that no murderer has eternal life, and I haven't murdered anybody. So I'm in the clear, right? Well, no, that's taking these verses out of context with the idea of 1 John. The idea of 1 John is that these things are how we can know that we have eternal life. They don't save us, but they're only affirmation of our eternal life. They are not salvation. We can't accumulate enough knowledge. We can't know enough doctrine to save us. We can't love enough people and have enough love in our hearts to save us. And we certainly can't live good enough lives to save us. The only thing that can save us is God and His grace. But the thing about that is it's internal. I can't physically see any of the Holy Spirit inside of you. It's invisible. It's in your heart. So how can we know that we're saved since these things are internal? Well, what 1 John says and these three points that I tell you today are external. They're expressions of what the Holy Spirit has given you. So let me explain it again in a different way. I know we have some college football fans, some Georgia Bulldogs fans. I know we have some basketball fans in here. So work with me through this uh, sports fan analogy. Now, how do we know that we're a football fan? It's just how we think in our minds. How can I know that someone's a football fan since it's only in their heads? There's no you know, outward, I have a sign that says I'm a sports fan. So we shouldn't be able to know if we're a sports fan. We shouldn't be able to know if someone's a Bulldogs fan or someone's a you know, Gamecock fan. But we do. We do know that people are fans, and it's easy to tell that people are fans. So, number one, we can know that people are sports fans. We can know this by that they have knowledge of their sport. You know, they know what a football is. They know, you know, how it's thrown, and they know the rules and regulations, and they know the players. So first, to be a sports fan, you have to have knowledge of your sport, and that's our first sports fan analogy point. We can know that we're a fan by... Our knowledge of our sport. Well, that's the first. Well, that's the same as with our first point. We can know that we have eternal life by what we know, what, by what we affirm to be true. Now, on the other side of this, if I was to tell you that I was a sports fan or if I was a football fan, and you asked me questions and I couldn't answer any of the questions, I didn't know how to play football, I didn't know any of the teams, you would obviously tell that I wasn't a true fan. And it's the same way. First, we have to have knowledge of God and of sound doctrine. But again, that's not enough. I know a lot about baseball. I know the players. I know the rules. But I don't love baseball. I don't enjoy to watch baseball. And therefore, I'm not a fan of baseball. 
So our second sports fan point would be we can know that we're a sports fan by what we love and enjoy about our sport. So how do we love and enjoy a sport? Well, we love when the day comes when our team and the rivals team clash and there's a, you know, competition between them. We enjoy when the day comes and we enjoy watching them. And that's the same as our second point. We can know that we have eternal life by what our hearts love. So in the same way that we, you know, love our sport, we can know that we have eternal life by loving God and loving the right things. And that leads us to our last and final sports fan point. Since we know about our sport and since we love our sport, what do we do about it? We obviously live a sports fan life. We change our daily habits to become a sports fan. So sports fan point number three is that we know we're a sports fan by living the life of a sports fan. We go to the games every week. We watch them. We pay money that we have worked hard for to buy tickets, to buy TV channels, to watch interviews, and everything like that. Now again, apply that same logic to our third point. We can know that we have eternal life by living a transformed life. So since I have eternal life, do I live a transformed life? Do I go to church? Do I love God and others? Do I read the Bible? Do I do this and that? There's so many things that we can do to live a transformed life. And we can see that it's easy from this silly sports analogy to know that I can be a sports fan and I can have 100% confidence that I'm a USC Gamecock fan. So why do we wonder if we have eternal life or not? There's no book saying that we're a sports fan, but there is a book saying that we can know that we have eternal life. So be confident in your eternal life through Jesus. And if you believe Him, in Him, and if you believe these three points and believe what First John says, then have confidence. Know that He is good and He can save you. And that one day you will have eternal life with Him. Now on the other side, if you did have confidence and sort of a cockiness that, yeah, I have eternal life, I know it. I've grew up in church all my life. But you didn't affirm these things. You didn't agree with these three points. Maybe you have come to know that you don't know what your confidence is in. So I hope First John has really, you know, been able to encourage you, whether it's now I have more confidence to know that I am a Christian, or maybe you have come to learn the truth that, hey, maybe I don't know about this as much as I should, or maybe I'm not really saved. Maybe I need to talk to someone a little bit more. So I want to uh, end with just encouragement to, if you don't have confidence anymore, I hope I did a service of just teaching something about having confidence. And I want you guys to be able to take the next step. So wherever you are, just be able to have confidence. Or be able to want to know more in order to have confidence. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to go to our next part. Dear Lord, thank you for everything you've given us. Thank you for giving us an inerrant book that's perfect. And being able to know that we have eternal life in you, Lord. And I thank you for this congregation supporting me and all that I do. And just being able to share some words with this morning and be able to encourage others, Lord. I pray that uh, people remember this 
sermon, not to be able to show off, but so that it can change their lives and so that they can have confidence in You, Lord. In Your name I pray. Amen.